Hiya listeners, what's going on in your life? How's your morning? How's your breakfast? How's that thing you're doing? Going well? Getting ahead? Have you paid those bills? Solved the problem that's been bugging you? Started that new job? Are you good? Are you comfortable? Sitting? Walking? Jogging? Have you got a coffee? A tea? A glass of wine? Are you ready? Ready? Yeah? That's great. Let's begin. Welcome back to The Writer's Show. It's the show where I talk to writers and discover that once you get them talking, you just can't shut them up, which is a good thing because you'll learn some things by listening. Today, we've got memory expert Anthony Mativier on the show. Do you worry about your memory? Afraid that you're losing it? Finding it hard to recall simple facts? We'll keep listening because Anthony is the king of memory. He's founder of the Magnetic Memory Method, a systematic 21st century approach to memorizing foreign language, vocabulary, dreams, names, music, poetry, and much more in ways that are easy, elegant, effective, and fun. Anthony writes his books and creates video courses for a variety of people who need help with a number of different memory needs. What separates Anthony from other memory trainers is that he doesn't focus on long strings of digits or training for memory championships. He offers simple techniques for memorizing the information that improves your daily life. And there's no hype in his training, just techniques that work. He's also written a great book called The Victorious Mind, How to Master Memory, Meditation and Mental Well-Being. Cool, hey? Let's jump in and talk to the memory king, Anthony Mativier. Welcome to the show, Anthony Mativier. Um, your new new book, The Victorious Mind: How to Master Memory, Meditation, and Mental Well-Being, has had quite an impact. Why did you write the book? Well, I, I don't know why that I wrote it other than to help people. You know, it was kind of like a personal thing, and I don't know why I wanted to get so personal about it. But the impetus was, you know, how why is it that memory techniques have thousands of years of tradition behind them? They have 30 years of memory competition records where just average individual people show up and perform miracles with their memory. And we have more science than anybody has time to read. And yet there are still people saying, this can't work for me. It won't work for me. My brain is different. You know, every objection under the sun. And I thought about it deeply and looked through a lot of my email correspondences with people. And I thought, why have I never written anything about meditation, you know, other than blog posts and talking about it from time to time? Because it's so clear that the one of there's many objections but one of the main objections is that people don't they don't have the focus for it they don't have the the mental i don't want to call it stability in a way that you know uh, is is insulting to anybody but there, there is a kind of requirement of focusing at least as long as the alphabet let's say a to z so that you can get started with these memory techniques and that's just been shot uh historically like there's always been people who have had trouble with that but it's now it's just ground to pieces with all of our dopamine spiking devices that yeah. you know, are constantly 
harming our ability to pay attention for longer than 30 seconds. And it's harmed my ability too. So, you know, it's something that I myself need to practice a lot in order to be able to follow a logical thought. Cause it's just like, I need more interruptions from the dopamine machine yeah. in order to focus. So that's, that was part of the huge thing about why that I wrote it. And I just thought, you know, what is the biggest thing I can contribute, which would be to help more people get these techniques because they're not rocket science. And there's gotta be a logical reason why that people are struggling with something that, you know, I do have the, what Steven Pinker called the curse of expertise. Like I've just blind to it because I've studied it for so long, but by yeah. the same token, there's gotta be a reason why that, you know, someone with as impoverished an intelligence as myself can get it. No problem. And, and people who are way smarter than me are struggling for years to figure this out and maybe never do. It's interesting talking about dopamine hits from um, social media. Do, do you think we've forgotten how to remember? Do you think Google, social media and smartphones have dumbed us down in a way and trained us to think that everything can be remembered on a device? You know, that's interesting question. And it's hard for me to give, you know, absolutely yes, of course, because there's a problem there, which is that, you know, people remember how to use the tools very well. And so this offloading of memory onto the devices isn't as clean and clear as, oh, yes, Google will remember it for you. There are so many things that we need to remember about the Internet itself that yeah. in many ways you could make the argument that our memories are getting more exercised than ever before. And we have been trained to become searchers in a way that previous generations couldn't because they would have to travel to a library to use you know, the library computer or those old file uh, you know, card boxes, and they yeah. would have to search that way, and they'd be like, to heck with it. But now, just type what you want. So in a sense, I don't know that, that it is actually doing the damage that we think it is. However, it may be that scrolling behaviors and what they sometimes call dual-path readership has harmed our attention span. But there, there are just many paradoxical and competing factors that make it hard to make a hard, uh, like a, a solid statement about it. So I'm generally pro tech. And I just think that, you know, digital amnesia is real. There's certainly an issue, but I wouldn't peg it on this or that corporation necessarily because there are things and there are signs that we are collectively getting, getting smarter and we're getting smarter because our brains are exercised to be searchers for answers. So uh, you know, it's it's like the great pharmacy, you know, there's medicines in every pharmacy that will help you, but the same thing that can help you can poison you faster than you can, you know, say abracadabra. All things in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> you, you write that you believe meditation and memory training go hand in hand. Why, why is that? Yeah, that's uh, something that not only that I, I thought and wrote about, but one of the greatest memory competitors alive right now, Nelson Dellis, he said, I've always thought that memory was like meditation. And the, the reason why that might be the case, if you look at something like Tantra, Tantra evolved and some meditation experts think that it evolved precisely to help those people with busy minds. And Tantra usually involves some kind of symbol that you would meditate upon. And, you know, that would, that would give you something to focus on. Maybe you would memorize some script and you would chant or yeah. you would uh, have a mantra or whatever. And so when we're using memory techniques, we're essentially 
focusing on symbols, on words, on the alphabet, on numbers, etc. And so that raw concentration on mental material is very, very much linked at the hip, if not the same thing. And, you know, if I had the budget, I would get the brain scans to, to see what similarities there are there. And I would, I would predict that they're, they're very strong similarities. What do you think the ancients can teach us about memory techniques? Well, a lot. I mean, the, the old Jehudis there, as uh, Alex would call them in Clockwork Orange, you know, they would use their hands to help them encode. The, here in Australia, you have a wealth of information about this uh, from the Aboriginal memory techniques, the song lines, but also if you um, ever read Sand Talk by Tyson Yonkaporta, he talks about using your hands to to memorize, and you know they would have um, they would really press their fingers together to sort of walk through these traditional ways of having conversations with each other to make sure that their meetings were structured. And this is yeah. back before they had, you know, uh, meetings and minutes of meetings and, you know, notes to <laughs> all this sort of stuff. They would actually walk through this, this mental structure for their, their, their meetings together. So we can learn about not relying on something written, but rather having deeply internalized procedures, wisdom, etc. But also, I think the key thing that the, the ancients had is that they... They didn't necessarily see the world as external. It was something that happened inside of them. And because what's happening inside of me is happening inside of you, we have a certain oneness that's not really divided in the way that our contemporary philosophies and psychologies and, let's say, consumerist approaches to things sometimes make us seem more different than we are which is, you know, not to be political, but just, you know, if I've got this car, I seem different than the dude that has that car. And yeah. um, I'm all for people having all the cars that they want, but um, it is a differentiating factor, but they sort of cautioned against that you, me division and sort of have more of an us thing. And if you memorize as much Sanskrit as I have, they, they must've had problems with people having egos about their, objects that they owned because they wrote thousands of years ago these little scripts that you were memorizing that helped you not let your ego you know get over uh, get a hold of you so that you were a destructive force in the community so i think they, they can teach us a lot about not taking life too seriously but not thinking that you are somehow better or different than somebody else just because you know you've got x objects that you've bought for a while with your borrowed fiat currency <laughs> well i said i've always thought it was amusing you see those stickers on the back of a certain kind of male who dies for the most toys wins and i thought mm, i think you've got it wrong yeah that's um that's kind of what i mean <laughs> without judging anybody at the same time it's just kind of like you prejudged yourself with that one <laughs> yes um certainly the ancients um, came up with a technique, Memory Palace, and um, mm. all of your work in some ways based on that basic um, thing, I guess. Um, the first time I came across it was in the book Moonwalking with Einstein. For, for those listening, what is it and why is it so important for memory techniques? Yeah, that's a great question. The Memory Palace is essentially a tool that people who use memory techniques basically want to really be familiar with because it lets them rest 
the things they want to remember in place. Another way to think about it is, is you know, you've got a Daleks painting behind you uh, or a, a poster. And yep. if I wanted to remember something in your house and let's say I, I met a, a, a Darlene, right? Or a Dale, let's make it more close. I meet a Dale and I can think, yeah, I remember I was on this interview with Jeff and he had this Daleks painting behind him there. And uh, I'm going to remember Dale right there because that location is rich with similar sounding material in that location. So the memory palace, you know how you just naturally remember where your fridge is? Well, if you want to remember to go to the Midnight Oil concert or whatever, I know you're celebrating today uh, <laughs> Aussie music uh, in the Aints. <laughs> if you want to remember where those tickets are, well, you stick them on the fridge with a magnet, right? Well, that's exactly what people you do when they use memory techniques. It's just that they use their imagination. It's an imaginary version of their fridge. And the fridge magnet is an imaginary association. And, you know, I remember Dale because Daleks has the word Dale in it and I would stick it right there. And then later I can go back and say, what, what the heck was that? Now, the other reason why the Mary Palace is so fundamental, so massive for our, our tradition of using these techniques is it lets us do spaced repetition in a very refined way. So if you create a memory palace in a strategic manner that you know the journey, let's say you know there's 10 stops, there's where your speaker is, there's where your scissors are, et cetera. And I place information that way. Instead of having an app show me information on some sort of algorithm, I can actually go forward and backward inside of your office there. And I can go from the middle from the scissors back to the poster and cross your speaker. I can go from your scissors around the other direction and I can skip the stations. I can go from the, you know, the poster, skip the speakers and go to the scissors. And that's going to give me what's called primacy and recency effect on each and every area in that memory palace, yeah. which is what spaced repetition software does, except for it doesn't do it nearly as well. And it can never do it nearly as well because what we need is what is called active recall, which is, elective voluntary recalling of what it was we were trying to remember and if we do it in those patterns then we remember it a lot faster and it gets into long-term memory a lot faster so that's why <laughs> so how, how long does it take to master the memory power technique it's the craziest thing well you know uh moonwalking with einstein joshua well joshua four with his his uh, moonwalking with Einstein, he very quickly yeah, managed yeah. to become the USA memory champ. So I think he, his his story is a bit nuanced because you know he it, it involves more than a year and so forth. But if you look at the the raw actual study time and so forth, you're probably boiling it down to something that is is equivalent to learning any any sort of skill. Really, um, yeah, it, it's it's what you put into it that you take away. But Anyway, to give you a more direct answer, I've had people memorize a thousand words. Eldon Clem, he's a, a, a person who studies ancient languages. He memorized a thousand words in ancient Ethiopic, which is you wow. know not not modern Ethiopic, <laughs> but uh, in six weeks, that's wow. a, a massive amount of words. And then he said that enabled him to go and read a thousand pages. That was his his thing is that he was now going to read a thousand pages. Uh, someone here. Uh, in in Australia, uh, Amanda Markham was her name. I had to take a second to look in my memory ah. palace there to find her name. He memorized, it was only, I think, 200 words in 
Arunta, which is a, a tribal or a indigenous language yeah, here yeah. In, in Australia. I, I'm not sure how you actually say it. I've never heard it pronounced, but she did that in 10 days. And she wow. worked, she was able to then go, like she was, a, I think you call it a social worker where I come from, but she yeah. she worked with that tribe and she didn't, she, she knew a, a, a couple of words and so forth. But as she described it, she said her fluency in that language went up by 70%. And then she was invited to, you know, work with them at a much deeper level as a result yeah. of that. So how exactly, how much time she spent to get to that point, I think it was probably a weekend of you know, reading a book, setting up the systems as I teach them, and then, you know, memorizing the stuff. So let's call it two weekends. I don't know. I've, I've been at memory competitions. I've seen people come who have never heard of memory techniques, learn these techniques, and then compete with the best of the best and give yeah. them a run for their money on the same afternoon. So it, it's different for different people. But one thing or one way or another, everybody can do it. I, I'm, I'm very convinced of that. So it needs to be a daily practice to really get the benefit from it i would say four times a week it would would be more than enough uh, yeah. of practice the thing is the irony and the paradox of it all is is we're all doing it all day long anyway like i like i said with the whole thing with the fridge yeah. right uh, we know where things are because of their location and one of the reasons why we forget certain things is because we don't pay attention to where we put the keys right but merely by paying attention to where we put the keys, we're using the same technique that we can use to memorize hundreds of words in a foreign language. So it's just a it's just a matter of learning the ins and outs of the techniques. And then yeah, I would say four times a week would be more than enough. I, I, it doesn't have to be every day. I happen to use it every day, but uh, <laughs> you, you don't have to, I don't think. You're renowned as the creator of the magnetic memory method. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about that? Yeah, the whole idea of the, the magnetic effect has two parts. There is this idea of the fridge magnet where you stick something in place and it is exactly where you left it. But there's also the idea that magnets repel. So how is it that we're able to focus and concentrate and not let our monkey mind get in the way? Because there's all kinds of objections that come up. Yeah. I've, I've been doing this for a long time. To this day, I will still have the monkey mind come up and be like, oh, I'm too tired. Oh, this is boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so part of this technique Welcome is- Welcome to my we... life. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's human. Actually, there's a part of the brain called the insular cortex, which apparently urges us to take a break, always delay. Uh, some people think this comes from the so-called Savannah hypothesis, where you know we have this image in our minds of the ancient people- uh, being warriors and just constantly out hunting tigers and bears and all that stuff. Yeah. But actually the evidence, according to the Savannah hypothesis, which of course has problems and people argue with it, but nonetheless, the idea is, is that humans actually sat in the shade for a very long time and they watched the tigers get their carcasses. And then when they were done feeding on them, the tigers would take off and the humans would run as fast as they could and drag the carcass, what was remaining back to the shade so they could eat off the remains and this has programmed our brains to do as little as possible in fast bursts of action so that we can go back and rest and save up energy for the next outing when we see that a tiger has left a carcass for us. Now, I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I think each and every single one of us can relate <laughs> to that sort of, I will wait until I absolutely have to do this thing and I'll save up the energy to do it, right? So it makes sense you know, that's, to me. That's, well, that's part of the monkey mind. The monkey yeah. mind 
according to this theory, is produced in order to help us save energy in that way. But in our modern world, we don't necessarily need to be doing that. So the magnetic memory method was partly, how can we add relaxation to shut down the objections at least long enough so that we can do what we need to do to be our highest possible self, pass the exams, learn the language, get the other thing, which is called the Tsigarnik effect, which is this nattering, oh, I wish that I would have done you know, X in my life. I wish I would have learned that language. I wish yeah. that I would have finished the course and passed the exam. I wish I would have become a doctor, blah, blah, blah. That's another monkey mind. And it's something that they say, according to the Zykarnik effect research, gets worse and worse and worse, the less and less that you actually accomplish any goals. So I wanted to figure out how can we get the best of both worlds, these amazing whiz-bang razzmatazz memory techniques, without having to suffer from this natural, normal, oh, just do it later kind of stuff. And so I built relaxation into it. And then I just studied the ancients deeply because the memory books of the 20th century, they were either by people who did a lot of stunts for magic tricks or just stunts unto themselves, or they were by memory competitors who were winning these competitions. And I couldn't figure out exactly how that had anything to do with memorizing an entire book if I had to. So I went back and read all the ancient books. And you know what a lot of them said? Turn off your monkey mind. And then they taught how to read um, the world a bit differently and to create memory palaces a bit differently than the competitors use. So I absorbed all that sort of stuff, practiced it, and then turned it into the magnetic memory method so that we have all the great things from the competitions. I've competed myself, so I, I know a little bit about that world, but also the ancient techniques. What did they really do when they couldn't carry books on their back and they needed to carry them in their heads? And um, like I said, they, they had the same problem, the nattering little mind, and they had all these instructions about how to do that, which you know we can talk about if, uh, if you're interested. <laughs> well, um, let's talk about it. <laughs> my, my memory seems to be getting worse as I get older. Is this normal? Can it be reversed with these memory techniques? Yeah, well, early cognitive decline can start in your 20s, and memory issues can start in the 20s. And so one, one of the things that we have a problem with is, is it really memory or is it the speed of recall, uh, which, yeah, so, you know, we can often get it back. Well, there's lots of reasons why age can contribute to that, and it, it can be that for example, there are studies that show that sleep doesn't have the same effect on the consolidation of memory for older people. So that can that can be an issue, uh, and it, it can be it can be legitimately that we are having health issues that we can't pay attention in the first place in the way that we used to because pain is the great thief of attention, and memory really starts with having paid attention in the first place. And then in terms of getting things back. It may be that we're, we're just not reading as much as we used to, which keeps us sharp. Uh, it may be that we're not having as many conversations as we used to because we don't have the demands of, of a profession. It can yeah. be all those kinds of things. So one of the things we want to look at is, are we having enough conversations with people? Are we continuing to read deeply? Are we taking on challenges to make sure that we're keeping or we're continuing to complete goals and meaningful goals? And so... You know, none of these things are magic bullets, but they're definitely things to look at, and all the more so as we age. Um, so having projects uh, is really, really important. And I think we know that even with taking memory out of the equation. Um, 
But there's also, you know, in terms of quieting that monkey mind, there's there's things like, you know, really being connected to not just a goal, but a goal that transcends you. So a lot of the ancient books said, if you're doing this for yourself, this is never going to work the way that it can. But if you think about how that you are tr- improving your memory in order to contribute to others, then, you know, you, you, and I think they're talking about dopamine spikes because yeah, what yeah. better way to get a dopamine spike than to have that feeling that you contributed, somebody else smiled because of something you did, or it improved their life because of something you said or did and so forth. So if you engineer your memory improvement project to contributing to others in a substantial and meaningful way, then you're probably going to proceed a lot faster. So it sounds kind of like, you know, new agey in a way, but it's old agey too. And, you know, I, I, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to it because, and here's, the, here's the kicker. And this is talked about in the ancient books of Giordano Bruno. Those people appear in the chemicals of your brain. He doesn't use that language, but he talks about the brain and it's just the weirdest thing. It's like, it sounds like contemporary neuroscience, you know, yeah. uh, where exactly memory is in the brain. And, when you think about Amazing. it, Amazing. every every person you know is represented to your consciousness because of an operation of them inhabiting the chemicals, the chemical bath of your brain. They're being yeah. processed. It's an image, but nonetheless. So why wouldn't you do things for them? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's just an amazing realization when you think about it. That's incredible. Let's get back to your book. Um the first part of your book, The Eye of the Storm, is a very frank recounting of your struggles with mental illness back in your 20s. Was it a hard decision to write about that? It was. You know, it's one of those things where I've talked about it. It was on my podcast, for example, and it was it was a real difficult thing to talk about. But at the same time, you know, we're in an era where one wishes that more people would open up about these things yeah. because we, we know that there there's an effect, the classroom effect that so many people will have a question, but only 2% of them will raise their hand, you know, yeah. to, to ask that question. So there was that, that which gave me courage to sort of open up about those sorts of things. But to be honest, I actually, I kind of don't know why that I decided to do it. And that's been part of another part of the book, which is just surrendering to you know, not, not not being an obstruction to the progress that sort of wants to come out as a practice. Uh, some people call it karma yoga, which is letting go of the outcome. And yeah. uh, I already, I mean, as I talk about, it, like the whole book was written because a guy named Ben basically challenged me. He said, you know, uh, there, you don't like spiritual stuff. You don't like chanting Sanskrit because you've got this bias against religion and all this. And I was, I was like, yeah, that's exactly why I don't do it. He's like, exactly what happened to this other guy, Gary Weber. And he memorized a bunch of Sanskrit and that made his thoughts stop forever. And they never came back. And I just said, BS. <laughs> but <laughs> I remembered the name of the guy. I remembered the name of the book and I went, it's called yeah. uh, Happiness Beyond Thought. I went home and I ordered it and I memorized all the Sanskrit that he had memorized. And lo and behold, about a year later, I was angry at the internet and about to throw my laptop off the balcony. And uh, I went to the park and I was chanting all the Sanskrit and my thoughts disappeared. So it worked. And um, long, long story short, you know, because I had my thoughts turn off, it made it a lot easier to actually 
open up and not really worry about, you know, oh, what are they going to think? Although, obviously, in a worldly sense, that still emerges, that 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 worry and that concern, even with my new projects. I mean, everybody writes a novel or uh, any nonfiction book. You're always anticipating something. And I talk about that in The Victoria's Mind. I even had this thing of like, well, how is this going to be received? And it's just, you just got to let it go. You got to let it go, let it go. And it's it becomes a much more beautiful practice when you can turn your thoughts off about it on demand, which is part of what that book is about is if that's possible, how do you do it? Well, it really grounds the book because it's, of course, grounding in your own experience, but how um, your study into memory techniques set your life in a completely different path. Yeah, it was a very different one. I would have, I would have never guessed that any of this would happen uh, when I started. You know, it's just amazing. Let, let's talk about writing. Um, you're a prolific mm. self-publisher. Do you do everything yourself or do you outsource the critical stuff? Well, with The Victorious Mind, I, I did hire a, a, a kind of editor. I, I really don't understand to this day all the differences between the different kinds of editors. <laughs> so I didn't think I didn't think I exactly got back. With, They're like the Masons, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very secretive. Well, and they'll, and they'll have like five terms for the same thing, you know. And it's just which am I getting from this person because they don't necessarily use the same term depending on which hiring resource you're getting. Anyway, she was very very good, and uh, I think she made a much better book. Because she was just like, you know, this isn't clear, or you need a story here, or, you know, this could use a, a better example there. So I guess it's what you would call a developmental editor. Yeah. Um, and, and that was a that was a really great experience, because normally editing books, what? I mean, who cares? There's a couple of typos. I read the recent Stephen King novel. I think there was five typos in there. I mean, like, what what hope in hell do I have if Stephen King can't weed out every typo? <laughs> you know, why even bother trying? <laughs> but yeah, I, I I hire cover designs uh, and so forth, and and I do try to get things proofread uh, as much as I can. But that was the first time I ever had somebody who looked at it developmentally, and that was that was a very cool experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have the great Amazon, the great Ingram Spark. Those are all outsourced, aren't they? I mean, we don't think of it that way, but but yeah. they kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> but you're doing what I I always preach to people: like you can self-publish, but do it properly. Do it. Yeah. Take pride in the, the the work that you're putting out there with your name on it. I do. I do the best that I can to to have that sort of pride, but it's also the same thing of like let it go because. Yeah, it, it, I mean, we've all had that experience of of somebody commenting on a book they obviously haven't read, and yeah. you know, it, it's it's kind of do the best that you can and do the best that you can to to let the world do what it does and uh, focus it. on the next one and the next one and the next yeah. one. So. Once it's out there, it's out there, and it's it's the world's. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let's let's talk about writing. What what's your process? Interesting question. I mean, it depends on what I'm writing. I just finished a, a novel. I I just got the typeset back, and uh, I wrote right. that two uh, basically two thousand words a day for forty four days straight. And I counted the days, and I made sure I showed up forty four days straight. Whether yeah. that makes for it a better story or a worse story because I stuck with it, that we can talk about after yeah. the you know, people enjoy it or not. But when I write, I try to to do that 
uh, hit that hit that mark. And one of the ways that I do that, and I do this with my blog posts as well, is they're usually around the 2000 word mark. Um, incidentally, a lot of people say, oh, that's Stephen King's thing. But I actually read that when I was in grade eight from Ray Bradbury. He yeah. had 2000 words a day in one yeah. of his books that was for uh, kids writing. And I don't know that that King knew that or attributed it in on writing. But anyway, I've had that for long before on writing came out. And it's beautiful. But in order to make myself do that, what I try to do is I try to write with an album playing. And that album is of a certain length. And yeah. it usually produces between 1700 and 2000 words if I write during the ah. entire album. So for years, I listened to heavy metal music by Jason Newstead, which is a, like a solo project that he had after Metallica. Yeah. And I mean, probably 50% of my blog posts were written while I was listening to that album. And I would listen from beginning to end. And um, for this latest novel project, I was listening to Nevermore, Year of the Voyager, over and over and over and over again. And um, that sounds maybe painful to some people. But for me, that's like the ultimate brain training or entrainment to just turn it on, write, go, and then be done with it for the day at the end. So you know when the album's done, you should have 2,000 words. Yeah, or more. I mean, I've yeah. I've certainly had more. I've certainly had less. But you know, the yeah. idea is that's the show up time, and it's and it's rigged in a way, and it's rigged in yeah. your favor as long as you like the music. And I guess another sub point here that might help people who might want to try that if they're not already doing something like that, because I'm pretty sure a lot of people already do that. But I try to make sure that it's an album that's regular, kind of regular, where all the songs have basically the same BPM, and yeah. uh, that the lyrics I either know them already or they're non-intrusive to some yeah. degree. So heavy metal, of course, is pretty much non-intrusive because who knows what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I they're just... It's like kind of always at this... Yeah. Beat and it's, every song is the same, basically. 150 BPM. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you, you used to play bass in a heavy metal band, didn't you? I remember last time we spoke. Still play bass. I still play metal, just not in a band. Uh, I'm studying jazz right now, actually, taking a course. Fantastic. <laughs> Which is a, uh, bends your mind in a, in a big way. Yeah, I love music. I, I write with music, but I, I can't have any lyrics in it. It just distracts me. As soon as somebody starts right, right. Um, singing, that side of my brain will listen to the, ly the lyrics. A any any reveals of the, the new book you want to share? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly why I wrote it, but one day I was in a bookstore and uh, somehow the fates put Michael Connolly's The Poet into my hands. And I was reading this and then all of a sudden I thought, I'm like this memory guy. I've been teaching memory for a long time and I don't like Sherlock Holmes. Why don't I like Sherlock Holmes? Like, it's so obvious. I should actually embrace this Sherlock Holmes stuff more because it's yeah, obviously yeah. Like, like so many people have come to me. I got into memory techniques because of Sherlock Holmes. And then I realized I did my dissertation on friendship. That's got to be why I don't like Sherlock Holmes. The guy is so mean to Watson, you know? Yeah. It's just like, oh, you didn't notice it was 17 steps, you moron. Like, I just, I can't, <laughs> I, I just, I don't like it. Right? Anyway, um, but I didn't want to be swept away by my like-dislike monster for the rest of my life, which is why the poet must have come into my hands. And then I just thought, I can do this. I mean, I can't do it like Connolly does, right? But yeah. I read, like, so many Connolly books, and then I just thought, oh, I got to try this. And so yeah. 
my, I, I just thought, what's the opposite of the Sherlock Holmes thing that for me, it was the opposite. And I thought a mem- a detective with early cognitive decline, who's going to lose his job if he doesn't get his mind sorted. And his best friend happens to be a memory champion who can help him, you know, with a program to bring his mind to, to up to speed. So for whatever reason, maybe I need to actually finesse this a bit in the novel, but for whatever reason, he has Beethoven's fifth as the, the opening, uh, uh. or as his, as his cell phone ring, but you know, his cell phone buzzes at the same time. So it sounds like a Trent Reznor album. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, Beethoven said that, that, that those opening notes were supposed to be, you know, the sound of destiny knocking. And yeah. uh, in a way, that's a message to myself is like, yeah. if I could pull this off a novel about a detective who has a friend who's a memory champion and he uses memory techniques as part of solving every crime, it could be a way to, you know, to be the next stage of what I'm doing. And so, you know, the novel's legit. It's not to teach memory techniques at yeah. all. Yeah. But as a little promotional thing for my audience, I thought, what if I also do like choose your own adventure kind of stuff or like a Zoom call, buy one of those murder mysteries, commercial licenses that you can do on Zoom. And then we use memory techniques together in real time as part of how we solve crimes. And uh, anyway, it just came to me at one point. And it's one of those things. It's just like that idea is too good not to not to try uh, just to see what would happen. So hence Definitely. this novel. When's it come out? <laughs> well, as soon as possible, I'm trying to get Amazon to send me a you know, a test copy of the print version so yeah. I can have a good read through what it looks like, but they're having a hard time figuring out how to send it to me in Australia, but uh, man, with, with any luck, yeah, maybe before the end of the year, um, but definitely next year, uh, early next year, first quarter. Fantastic. Was this a COVID project? No, it was literally, I'm reading like Michael Connolly and then all of a sudden it dawns on me, why do I hate Sherlock Holmes so much? Yeah. And then I was like, Oh, I got to, I got to try this. <laughs> when I realized that I was like, I wrote my, not only did I write my dissertation on friendship, but a, a lot of what I talked about was how, how that criminals are underrepresented in our image of friendship. Right. And yeah, so yeah. I, I, I did a lot of investigation and I talked about Hannibal Lecter and all this sort of stuff and yeah. how Hannibal Lecter relates to, to things like the Aristotelian conceptions of friendship. Yeah. 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 Anyway, the, the whole thing is, is I just, I don't, I don't think it was a COVID thing. And I've written novels before, so it wasn't yeah. as if I hadn't uh, done fiction before. But anyway, I, I don't think it, maybe it was a COVID thing, but no, it wasn't at the end of the day, not in my mind. <laughs> so, what's, what's been fascinating with COVID for me is, um, as a musician is just seeing this flowering of music that's just popped up the last few months. A lot of artists in Australia have just been secretly recording their COVID albums and just release them and you go wow that's a good use of time right there so yeah yeah well it might be one of those things where the monkey mind the monkey mind that says oh it's too hard to learn production it's too hard to learn the software actually had nowhere to go and you know people finally did learn that software maybe that's part of it I don't know we we spoke a little on the magnetic memory method um your, your books are part of an entire ecosystem of sorts podcasts courses youtube videos how important is that platform or being your book success i think it's been very important i mean when i started i only had books 
And it's just a seat of the pants adventure where I moved from Canada to Germany to go play with a band on the strength of two Kindle books I think I had out that were fueling that. And it was it felt like a magic trick. Um, yeah, yeah. But the Kindle, you know, gold mine didn't last forever. And yeah. I just happened to be lucky enough to have heard about video courses and so i made those and then i was lucky enough to see a pat flynn video it's like hey you gotta have a podcast and he had the little instructions on how to do it and uh, so you know i just thought yeah that's a great idea i could actually have my own radio show so to speak yeah. which has been a fantasy of mine forever and uh, so that's that's been huge because really it's a it's an ability to not only connect with people but when you've got something to tell them where to get it you know, uh, and how to get it. And video also, I mean, I didn't want to be on camera for the longest time. I used to just use slides. I've got like a recurring skin issue and yeah. uh, I can't predict when it's going to be bad or good. It's gotten a lot better over the years because I've worked on my health a lot, but even to this day, it's like, doesn't feel good to, to be on camera necessarily uh, some of the time, but it's just been huge because there's a lot of people who are purely visual or I shouldn't say purely, but, you know, they're on the visual spectrum. They got to see it in order to understand yeah, it yeah. Uh, or engage with it, better said. And uh, so that's been huge. And, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but they're talking about video books now. And that's a very exciting thing. On the one hand, it, it it's not my way to engage with books, but I like the physical books. But um, I think it's just if you can find in yourself a way to hit all those mediums, you're just going to do better just simply by math and virtue of consumption yeah, yeah, preferences. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, for the people who are never going to buy your book, they just don't read, they don't want physical things, they don't want digital books, the, you, having a course, having an online opportunity for them to engage, it totally makes sense. I mean, maybe there's a, a space that hasn't, it already exists and I don't know about it, or it's an opportunity for somebody out there to have live poetry readings on zoom or to have a, an entire one act play or a one person play like a, a, a monologue or something that people come to. I don't know. I mean, I, I just say embrace it. It's there. It's part of the world. So if you can get yourself to do it, do it. The technology genies out of the bottle. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, more to come uh, to be sure. Well, if uh, Zuckerberg has his, has his way, we'll all be living in the meta. Yeah, although notice that in his initial video, the first thing you see is a bunch of people playing cards. And I thought, why would you want to reproduce the most mundane and ubiquitous human activity on Earth inside of the metaverse? Can't you come up with something better than playing cards? <laughs> uh, but um, it's a sign because the only thing that you can reproduce is symbols or references to things that are known to the human brain, right? So. Yeah you're going to reproduce the world and it's going to have all its problems. So yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't think his track work record with Facebook has been really good in terms of what Facebook's evolved to be. Um, so yeah, to have that on steroids in a 3d, uh, ultra realistic immersive environment. I, I, hmm, I think I'll, well, yeah. I'll just leave that to the side. Um, you write a, in your book, you write about how combining meditation and memory techniques has helped you thrive as a teacher, a writer, and a communicator. Can you tell me more about that? 
Well, being able to pay attention to the moment is huge for everything. I mean, you get so much more material to write about when you pay attention to to the world down to, you know, the colors of things, the shapes and sizes of things, the emotional dimensions that you just don't perceive otherwise, or at least I wouldn't. And, you know, just being able to be with a, a private client or uh, a group of students and really pay attention to not just what they're saying, but what they're not saying, because, you know, you don't want to make assumptions, but listen between the lines as much as you can. It's, it's just, it's incredible. It, it impacts everything and it, it, it pays off in content creation because as much as you're trying to reach thousands of people in your content creation, if you can't reach one, you know, and you're in trouble. Uh, so just yeah, being able yeah. to be attentive to that, to that one special concern and yeah. all its nuances is just explosive. It's atomic. That's uh, good advice. We might wrap it up there. Let, let's um, talk about you, but where can people get hold of a copy? Well, it's on Amazon. Uh, broadly speaking, it's audiobook. there's print, there's the ebook version. And to this day, I mostly just stick with Amazon or you can get a enhanced version directly through me that I sometimes uh, remote here and there on special promotions that has some, some, uh, some video elements and so forth. But uh, if you happen to get it after listening to this podcast, let me know, I'll hook you up with those advanced elements. <laughs> it's a uh, magnetic memory method.com people can go to to get more yeah, absolutely yep absolutely and uh you know whatever you're trying to memorize whatever you want to learn better or connect with better i'm always happy to to help people with that with that project uh, that they're working on because that's that's one of the things that's so special about the internet is that we can actually you know figure out it doesn't have to be robots i do use robots but you know it, it can actually be a connection and say, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I do have a podcast about that. You, you know, maybe just start with that and see how that goes, you know. So stop on by. I'll be, I'll be happy to hear from you. Well, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been a few years since we spoke. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Thank you so much. Great to see you. I love talking to Anthony. His enthusiasm for his subject is contagious. Do you want to learn more about the magnetic memory method? And I think you should. Just go to Anthony's website, magneticmemorymethod.com. His book, The Victorious Mind, is available on Amazon in ebook, print, and audible formats. So get yourself a copy, and it's a fantastic read. As usual, all show notes to this episode of The Writer's Show are on our official website, thewritersshow.com. The Writer's Show podcast is produced by Madhouse Media Publishing. They can help you get published. Visit madhousemedia.com.au to find out how. Phew, that's it for me. It's been a huge couple of weeks. We're taking a little break from the show, but we'll, we'll be back in a few weeks. If you've just joined us... Go back and listen to some of the back catalogue interviews. There's some great stuff there with some great writers that I'm sure you'll enjoy. You've been listening to The Writer Show. I'm Jeff Hughes. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 